So I am very happy to be welcoming Sean Kidney from Climate Bonds to join us today for the podcast. As anyone who's listened to a couple of our episodes at least will know, there is a lot of discussion about not just the technology that might be needed or the approaches that industrials could be taking to decarbonisation, but also how we're going to get to uh, finance at scale. And that is why Sean is here. So Sean, could I ask you to give a little bit of a background to you and the work you're doing at Climate Bonds? Sure. Well, the mission of climate bonds is to mobilise global capital for climate action. Um, there's a kind of story behind it. I mean, I'm the co-founder, so I had a midlife crisis. Uh, I had a my father died, a business went under. I had a stroke, in fact, and instead of buying a red Maserati, I made this crazy decision to work on climate issues and climate change which led me to a couple of years looking at theories of change because I was a strategist before. And um, I came up with this idea that there was a scope to mobilise institutional capital as a force for change uh, to counter the legacy forces that were blocking change. I think you know what I mean by that. And that led to this idea that actually let's focus on bonds because this sector is in bonds no, taught, nothing's been done about bonds in the past. And also there's a different concept in bonds, which is you can't say the investor should take all the risk on behalf of society. It just doesn't work that way. You've got to actually engineer the investments to ensure that they meet the risk yield requirement of investors. And the way you engineer, typically in infrastructure, is the public sector does stuff. It might give a licence. It might give a regulation. It may even give a guarantee. might fund it occasionally. So you start looking at a different toolkit that we've been looking at in equity space and therein lies the discussion about collaboration between the private sector, that is the holders of capital, institutional investors, and the public sector looking for fiscally efficient measures, even more important now, to achieve transition. And underlying this whole idea that got me going, got me excited, was this idea that we can transition our societies. We do have the capital. The capital could be instant green, and actually we've proven that because now we have a trillion-dollar green bond market, which didn't exist a few years ago. has grown crazily in the last few years. So we've proven the point that you structure a deal to meet the risk-yield requirements according to existing ratings levels of investors, and you make it green, and they, they jump at it. Subscription levels for green debt are way higher than ordinary debt. And actually, they're quite high for ordinary debt anyway at the moment. And you get price movement and all sorts of things out of it. So we've done that. The other thing we've done is to slowly but surely expand the conception of what a transition is. Now, when we started in this space, you know, people said clean energy railways, aren't they dirty? You know, we had to say low carbon transport. You know, if you start looking at climate and so on and so on. Over the years, we've managed to expand this. So we now have green bonds for water infrastructure, which is adaptation issues from San Francisco and Cape Town, green bonds for agriculture, green bonds in different areas. And the goal is to continue to expand investors' understanding of what are the key investments to make to meet the Paris Agreement beyond the obvious. Now, at the end of the day, we've got to look at every corner of the economy. That's the way we're looking at a transition which will reach into all parts of our lives going forward. But some of it takes work to understand what's got to be done. And getting that clarity of understanding of what to do versus, I don't know, is this in or not? 
um, is really a key part of the battle for us. And of course, it has a particularly benefit in debt capital markets is that clarity, boundaries, builds markets. It allows you to commoditize. If you don't have that boundary level, commoditization and therefore growth is much, much harder. And that's one of the things that we've been doing in the green bond space. So a bit of a long-winded answer. Alex, would you get the drift? I do get the drift. So let's let's just take, uh, I will come back to a couple of those points about the kind of uh, size of the green bond market. But before we do, just take a, a step back. So just as a kind of an overview, what's what's your sense or uh, what, what are you kind of, you and your team seeing as the sort of levels of investment that are really needed to drive this kind of big energy transition and to achieve Paris Climate Accord and to get to net zero? What, what numbers, what terrifying numbers are we talking about? Well, bear in mind, we're looking way beyond electricity generation, which is the main, or, or transport energy, which are two areas most people think about. Um, you know, we're looking at a wholesale industrial transformation. That requires you to look at everything from plastics to steel to, to aluminium to concrete, etc. You've got that kind of area, and this is where transition agenda is quite a really important part of it. You're looking at trend of changes to agriculture. I mean, not only do we have agriculture which releases carbon from the soil now rather than capturing it, but of course it's dependent on fossil fuel infrastructure, which is its own problem, and so on and so on and so on. In each of these areas, there are complexities. So the energy sector is probably, well, it's the most critical part in the sense of the most urgent emissions reductions. But other areas, notably land use management and reforestation and turning soils into carbon sequestration opportunities, are almost equally important in terms of the impact on, on greenhouse gases going forward. Uh, so there's just all sorts of areas, I suppose, that we need to look at before we finished. In the energy sector, we're making really good progress, really good progress. Um, it's quite clear now that renewables in most parts of the world, that is warmer parts of a bit of sunlight, are now actually cheaper than fossil fuels. So really it's now legacy industry stuff, you know, install capacity versus the cost of new that we're dealing with. Um, so in a sense we've won that discussion. It doesn't mean it's played out yet. We still have, you know, for example, in countries like Indonesia and the US, legacy industry, the gas industry, unwilling to give up the position and fighting tooth and nail to stop the transition to renewables. You know, and batteries is a side issue in, the, in this, this question. Um, but in other sectors, it's much more complicated because we're still not sure about the pathways going forward. And, and um, shipping's an example where when I was part of a global maritime forum recently and I, I expected the shipping companies to be talking about the, the challenges of um, CapEx and buying new ships, they actually said, actually, our problem is understanding where the fuel sources are going to be. If you can give me some kind of certainty about where low-carbon fuel sources come, we'll simply just change our CapEx plans. Not, not actually hard. And I thought, whoa, especially as we were looking at a key turnkey fuel source, which was hydrogen or ammonia from green hydrogen. And if we can crack the green hydrogen nut, and I feel very, very optimistic about this, I have to say, then it's clear now we actually open up pathways for transition in a number of sectors, in long-distance transport, shipping, aviation, to my surprise, aviation, uh, terrestrial, uh, in steel industry and a, and a bunch of other manufacturing sectors <clears throat> as well. 
it's not, not so important for electricity generation, to be frank. That's a bit of a red herring. But you, you kind of find things which are turnkeys to the transition once you start fossicking around. And um, they tend to be looked at in silos and in specific industries. And it's only if you can do a cross-industry approach that the power of the turnkey becomes visible. And this is, these are the weeds we're in at the moment. What we're trying to do is to start the process of fleshing out what are the correct investments to make and the next stage, which is how can we achieve rapid change in turnkey solutions, which will free up pathways in other sectors. Because if we can get a convincing story about that, it allows us to have ambitious thresholds about what needs to be done in different sectors. And one of the things we're very focused on is identifying to make it as easy as possible for investors, sharp boundaries about what's in and what's out. This is this business about market making and <clears throat> commoditizing the market. And that's exemplified best in the work we've done around a climate bonds taxonomy and now a European Union taxonomy, which is a, characterized as a shopping list for the future, it's a shopping list for the Paris Agreement. And anything in that basket is low risk, is a positive energy. If it's not in the basket, we're still working on it. Sorry, go ahead, Alice. No, no, I was just, I know it's always kind of hard to sort of pin down a, a number. I'm, I'm wondering, if there, is there a generally recognised number, like the amount of investment needed, or is it? Yeah, I did squeak. <laughs> I'll admit, I'll admit. And that's because there are so many moving parts. Yeah, okay. But the, tip, the typical figure I take is, is on infrastructure, let's just say. By 2025... Global investment infrastructure needs to be around seven trillion US dollars a year. It's currently sitting at about four trillion, maybe three and a half trillion US a year in the COVID era. So it's got to go up just to meet um, development plans of emerging markets, the like. Now that infrastructure is now largely not green. That is, people are building freeways rather than railways. So, if you like, it's not so much. New, in, new investment, it's repurposing existing investment to be consistent with our climate priorities. So you can see that of that $7 trillion, probably $5 trillion has got to be refocused to being green. And we've probably only got about a trillion going in the right direction at the moment. Okay. So then that, that brings us to kind of the, the core of today, which is about the concept of transition bond versus green bonds you've already mentioned there are trillions of dollars now going into the green bond market so why 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 is it not working at the pace needed why is you know what's what's the kind of the barrier to it really working effectively and therefore why is a transition bond framework part of the answer well i, I don't know whether a transition bond framework is a necessary development uh, to be clear it's a tactical step. You know, we have um, we have a lot of interest on the part of governments and companies that you might characterise as being high-carbon companies on a naming and a label that allows them to play a role in this preferential market, which is broadly green. Now, I'm going to say our concern is, and one of the key principles we've, issued, we've put out under the transition finance uh, discussion paper we put a, a couple months ago, is that everything needs to be consistent with the Paris Agreement with 1.5 degree trajectory. That's step one. But, of course, we know that in, let's say, steel production, it's complicated because it's a longer CapEx plan and uh, a longer approach. 
So understanding what are the right CapEx pathways for a steel company is necessary to figure out whether a steel company can issue green bonds or transition bonds. So what I generally say is that in the shopping list for the Paris Agreement, we will eventually have, and we're already getting, a ice cream collection of different flavours. We've got green flavour, blue flavour, you'd be interested to know. We've got water flavour, resilience flavour, and we will have transition flavour. So it's all part of ice cream for the Paris Agreement, if you like, but in different sectors and in different kind of areas, there's more, there's different sorts of complexity to the underlying understanding of what you've got to do and different tenors and um, time horizons too. So in the transitions area, what we're saying is there's three kinds of things we think work is needed on and we're planning to do a lot of work, this work next year. The first is encouraging fossil fuel companies to invest in qualifying investment. So you saw a couple of weeks ago Total, the oil and gas company, issued a green bond to finance renewables in the US, which they own a large renewable company. And I'm going to say, hallelujah, this is what I want. This is what we want. Um, so that's one kind of transition. So effectively, you're transitioning your business model. You've got existing assets, which are not seen very positively by the market, but you are doing something, et cetera, et cetera. The second part is a little bit more complicated. So this is an example. The steel industry is a good example where you've got a CapEx plan which doesn't look particularly green now, but is part of a strategy to shift your operations to a different kind of approach. So you need to therefore understand what the benchmark for that industry transition is to make that assessment. And is the benchmark adequate enough? You know, the Japan Iron and Steel Federation has a, stra- a trajectory to zero carbon steel by 2050, which involves 20 years of using uh, methane gas, natural gas, and then shifting to green hydrogen in the 2040s. Our view at this stage and our initial thinking is not ambitious enough. It may be the right approach from what they see from their current standpoint, perfectly understandable, and they've got some good people working on this in terms of price constraints and issues, but actually it's nowhere near rapid enough for the Paris Agreement where we've got to get global reductions of of 55% against 1990 levels by 2030 to meet the IPCC targets globally. So working back from that, I tried to understand what the blocks are. We found this glorious bit of news, which is hydrogen is the turnkey. If they could get lower-cost green hydrogen generated by renewables by 2030, it would change their entire CapEx scenarios. And there's a story why I think that's entirely possible, which we'll come to in a minute. Now, if we can make that case, then we have a strong argument for a trajectory, a CapEx plan, which is different to what they're currently thinking about, and that gives us a benchmark for the steel industry going forward. So you then have different kinds of investments along a route, which is a second kind of criteria. And then the third criteria that we're looking at is what I call entity-level strategies. Let's take the BP plan recently. BP's come out with a very aggressive transition plan to 2050 net zero carbon. Not bad, actually, but do we understand enough of the benchmarks in different industries, as per the steel industry, I was just saying, to be able to make a robust assessment of the BP corporate strategy. If we do, and my hunch is we can, but we've got to have a close look at it, um, then we should be saying, well, look, all of BP bonds should be bought into this market. Well, no one's going to be happy calling them green, frankly, because they are bonds about BP in transition. 
and they will require annual reporting against BP's plan. And if they don't meet the target they set themselves and they're judged to be adequately ambitious next year or the year after, they'll lose that halo, which they don't want to lose, by the way. You know, no one who gets a halo wants to lose it. So that becomes a self-reinforcing or self-policing uh, effect. But we've got to understand what is appropriate ambition. If we don't understand what is appropriate ambition, we're missing a trick. Now, work has been done on this. The Energy Transitions Commission, chaired by Lord Adair Turner, has already done some good work. The Rocky Mountains Institute in the US has done some good work, and so on. So it's not an invention of the wheel. It's rather collecting what good work has been done about what the Paris Agreement means to the different sectors and linking it back to a financial, financial industry perspective and financial product. And the opportunity is there now. The opportunity is there because the green bond market demand is so strong. You know, overscription strong. Investors are saying, give us more that an extension, a bit like we did eight years ago, extending renewable energy into transport. Bog obvious now, but it wasn't to the investors at the time. That opportunity is available to us now to extend this market into much more complicated areas that have been hard to understand or assess from an investor perspective in the past. Is there a, is there a sense in which, you know, that this is also about not diluting what green bonds are about or is it is it simply to define different frameworks so that you know that the kind of when people are reporting on the investments they're making they can they can sort of segment them into different groups what how how important is it to protect the green bond kind of headline or, or is that not it is that not really the point either um look i'm going to say two answers to that marketing is marketing right so if someone wants to call an ice cream purple and the market really likes the colour purple, go for it. I am concerned about that it really is ice cream. So, so I want some clear product understanding and rules under the hood, which is what we're concerned about. The transition label is about the purple aspect. And a lot of investors do feel uncomfortable. That's all right. I'm not, I, I, I don't have anything about that. Calling BP a green company, historical legacy. I mean, BP hasn't always been the best corporate citizen in this area. And so they're much more comfortable saying different class, much more oversight, I want much tougher approach here, uh, and call it a transition label. And I think if that's the concern, which is a reasonable concern to be quite honest, um, then let's do it. Let's make it work. So it's clearly all part of climate. Everything is that we're looking at. But there are different sectors. I mean, the agricultural sector is, is complicated. The resilience sector, different set of rules, different sort of approaches is complicated. And you've seen some resilience bonds come out. So I'm saying they're part of climate. You can call them green or resilient. But in many markets, like the US, it's actually much better to sell them as resilient bonds. You don't get Republicans up in arms so much at that point. So that's marketing, right? Let's go for what works. Okay. Well, with that that in mind, um, let's let's have a look then at the actual, you know, what, what what it means to be classed under the transition bond framework. So how how would it? What does that look like? What does that mean? If I'm a if I'm a cement company listening to this, what what does it mean? And what do I need to do to to engage with that framework and, and line myself up for that investment? Well, well, the first thing is we need to know 
we need to have clear rules about what qualifies or not. We have started that process in the EU taxonomy. So that in some industrial sectors, there are clear rules in uh, concrete, in steel, in aluminium, in plastics, for example. And that will evolve. There are rules where the goalposts will change. So a different kind of approach to the word transition. The idea is that you start off with a level like this and it gets tougher and tougher and tougher up to a vanishing point where you've got to be some, figure out how to be net zero carbon. Um, and so, that, so there's, a, there's a conceptual framework already in there. What we now want to do is to do more fleshing out of what that might mean in specific industries and make it easy for people to understand how to participate. But it's already there. So you can actually now issue a transition bond in the European market knowing that there are clear criteria in the EU taxonomy you can use. That taxonomy will be published in a couple of days' time as a draft legislative act and it'll come into force early next year. So it's kind of pretty well advanced. Um, so what we'd like to do now is to do more work on what that means for CapEx plans so we can do more work on assessment methodologies and tools for different sectors and move to that holy grail, frankly, of being able to do edity level assessments, which is at the moment most edity level assessments are pretty crude. They're based on decarbonisation targets. But actually decarbonisation as a, as a target needs to vary considerably from industry to industry. I mean, if you're Telefonica, you're going to have a different decarbonisation rate than if you're Thyssen Group based on the industry you're in. So unless you understand the appropriate rate for that industry, in it, which is also a technologically viable strategy question. And uh, this you, is your you point about appropriate ambition, isn't it? Correct. It's not, right. not one kind of, it's not one line on a barometer of appropriate or inappropriate. It's what is appropriate within that given hard to abate or other sector. Exactly right. That's exactly right. And so that's the work that's got to be done and exactly underway right now. And now if you're a concrete company, what it'll mean is you will have more opportunities to raise finance in what has become a highly preferential green slash transition market. Now, whether there'll be a different set of preferencing for transition, we'll wait and see. In many economies, governments and regulators are beginning to look at incentives for uh, investment products that meet their public policy pri priorities. Uh, from a re regulator's perspective, it's all about how to reduce, lower the forward risk of financial stability um, by shifting capital into area X instead of area Y, which is seen as lower risk. Um, so you're going to see more and more of these things going in. You might find some governments, and the Japanese government comes to mind, having a very high priority on transition investments because they have such a strong manufacturing base. They need to shift it. So there may be uh, more incentives there in transition than there are in green, the way we're going now. This is a political question, of course, nothing to do with what you might suggest. But these things are open. So if you're a concrete company, you're looking for what you can do that qualifies. Now, I can tell you already that the majors have low-carbon concrete products available. And frankly, the only reason they're not the same price, as far as I can see, of normal concrete is because they've got a small user base and they're Therefore, there's a lack of economies of scale issue. So if we can crack that nut reasonably quickly, which will probably take some work on governments and procurement rules and the like, 
then we can shift to low-carbon concrete. Remember, concrete's worth about 7% of global emissions, so it's a big chunk of the problem, um, to low-carbon concrete, which can be somewhere between 70 and 90% lower emissions, remarkably quickly, at no cost in post. But there's a bit of work to, to get the machine you know, turning, if you like, in that direction. And this is, of course, where collaboration between the public sector and the private sector becomes critical. Because if we can shift procurement rules in a way to, just as one hypothesis, in a way to achieve volume orders, the concrete industry are telling me they can get the price down really quickly. Uh, and then, of course, for the concrete industry, this is a clue to what their what capex would be eligible under the transitions label, and potentially what strategy directions for different companies are. We already have some concrete companies in the world, like Bharat Cement in India, the number four, who have use a very low emissions clinker mix compared to their competitors, and they may meet the criteria already. They've got to look at this question. In which case. They might be able to start issuing transition bonds really fast. And this is something for all concrete companies to look at. So the opportunity is to play in this particular market of preferential climate-aligned or Paris Agreement-aligned investments. And what do you get out of that? Well, in some markets, you're going to get stronger investment interest. In most hard currencies, sorry, in all hard currencies, you will get substantially stronger investor interest based on whether current market is now, um, you will prob- you'll probably start getting licensed to operate considerations. So as the public sector appreciates this potential of getting low-carbon concrete at the same price as the old concrete, they're going to quickly move to say, oh, hang on, why are we allowing high-carbon concrete at all, or high-GHG concrete, I should say, going forward? So you want to stay ahead of that wave. Um, and every investor believes it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when it's going to happen. And you may get price benefit because the demand of this market is so strong. This is in capital raising. is so strong for green and transition products so far that um, you do see in Euro- the European and the US markets lower rates for green bonds and we believe transition bonds as well. In fact, we have seen some transition bonds get good rates already. And this, you know, right down to sovereigns, you know, the German Bund, the German Green Bund that was issued a couple months ago got a, they got a 0.46% negative interest rate, which is crazy for a normal German Bund. The Green Bund got a one basis point lower rate, even though it's exactly the same for all intents and purposes. And it's trading at an eight basis points benefit in the, in the secondary market. So if you did buy at a lower rate, you're still ahead because the secondary market value of the bond is so much better. Now, these are things available to you if you can meet the rules going forward. And, of course, if you're a double B or a single B or a, or, or a triple A uh, cement manufacturer, the spread against uh, base is even wider, the differential green spread. You will get a much higher, a much better rate than you would your competitors in these areas. So that's the prize, right? And that's, of course, what we try to do, really. We try to say, if you're doing something which is going to appropriately and realistically be material to achieving the Paris Climate Change Agreement, you should be getting preferential capital. And you are. I mean, like in China, if a green bond gets issued by, well, well green bonds held by banks against things like this, 
uh, allow banks to get a 1% discount on wholesale capital and liquidity lending window of the central bank. They get cheaper money. And you're going to see more and more of these kinds of incentives coming in. So um, a transition bond, and this is my ignorance, so I'm going to put my hands over the ears of my listeners because this is entirely my ignorance, <laughs> but this, um, this, this would, is not obviously just for private or sorry, public listed companies. This, this could also be, I don't know, for the sake of argument, if uh, London's urban climate resilience project, you know, work formulated project X, they, they would also be able to get this preferential capital and this framework to help them secure kind of a different type of investment to move a city-based project forward, not just, I don't know, Semex, uh, putting sure. CUS around their plants, you know, so there's the, this, this is not only something that drives the, the kind of the corporate market for the industrial market for this is also the incentive to start encouraging uh, local, national, regional government to perhaps move towards that, that type of uh, procurement plan. Would that, would that be right? Or again, am I overreaching? Uh, look, I, I think that's right. I mean, the whole idea is our societies have got a transition. And they've got to do it pretty fast. Now, if you're building a solar farm, you're kind of future-proof because it's going to qualify in 2050. So people tend not to call solar farms transition farms. They're green. But if you are changing the nature of a city like Birmingham or a city like uh, Marseille to be consistent with what it needs to be under Paris Climate Change Agreement targets by 2030, then that is clearly a transition. So... Municipal investments, municipal bonds in that space would qualify as transition bonds. So, yeah, the idea is it can, it will, and it must be across all different kinds of asset classes. It's important to note that in Europe, where the taxonomy label incorporates the idea of transitions, this is a disclosure regulation that will be mandatory for all investors, corporations, and banks, and member states. So when they report to the commission or to their relevant regulator in the future on the high carbon or the sustainable investments they have, they have to use the same common language, which is embodied in the taxonomy. And that includes transition investments of various kinds. And there will be benefits as a result of doing that. Uh, so it's way beyond bonds. It is, it is equities, it's public sector expenditures as well. Now, the extent to which the driver will be there will be a function of two things. It will certainly be a function of incentives provided by the public sector or by regulators. And we're sort of seeing this with Christine Lagarde talking about green quantitative easing by the European Central Bank. In other words, they will have a preference to buy green bonds. So you've got those kinds of incentives coming through. But there's also a public aspect. So we have a very strong push by the public and, and by... Um, asset owners for to bias their investments towards sustainability that will address the Paris Agreement. And when you've got a choice between a couple of investments, let's say similar risk yield, people are now already saying, give me the sustainable one. And that's only going to grow. And that's where the growth of this market is. And that's where we expect it to go going forward. And that would translate into a kind of license to operate in the sense of, well, let me put it in the words of one large bond investor in Sweden now, which is the most advanced market in the series, which has the highest per capita issuance of green and related bonds in the world. He, he said to me, Sean, in Sweden, if someone issues a bond, 
and it's not a green or a related bond like a transition bond, we always say, what's wrong with you? Is there something that we don't know about your business or your entity? <laughs> and I think that's what we're going to see. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, so just as a sort of starting to sort of uh, wrap this up, give me your give me your sort of sense then. What's what are the kind of two or three things that just need to happen in the next twelve to eighteen months to really start getting this scale of movement moving? Like, so short term, two or three things that you would like to tick off that would really enable this kind of flow of investment to to start. Well. Um... We're positing that we need to be very clear, we need, on an educational level, very clear about what are the rules are to make it easier for industry. So there are five principles. One is transition investments need to be in line with the Paris Agreement's 1.5 degree trajectory, one. They've got to be established by science, not by economists or politicians, if you like. It's got to be science-based. This is what we've got to, the big difference between the last 30 years and now is for the last 30 years we've said, taken what the scientists have said and we said, oh, that looks really hard. We'll ju- we just can't quite, let's just do this, that'll, that'll do. And the, and the truth is it's proven not to be good enough and that's why we're in such a pickle with the emissions reductions we have to get now. Three, offsets don't count. So if you've got a cement plant in Dusseldorf, you've got to improve the cement plant you can't claim you're planting forests not in Austria as part of it. Now, planting forests in Austria may be a good thing, but it doesn't help you with the actual plant in this circumstance. So that's a key point. Um, four, it is about technological viability, not about economic competitiveness. This is a bit like the science idea, really. You know, so how do we do this? Can we do this? Is the technology available? not whether the market conditions are right to be able to get a cheaper price for an existing availability. So this is where the different forms of concrete that I mentioned come in. But we know it's there. We know it can be scaled up. We just have to engineer the system to ensure it can be scaled up. And then finally, action, not pledges. So promises don't count. You've got to be doing it. So if you want to issue green finance as a corporate, uh, for example, expect to have concrete uh, contracts in place. You can't say that I will get there in two years' time. So these are some basic principles. But to be honest, once the basic principles are out there and we've already published these, it's a matter of getting on with it. We need clarity in different sectors, but we've already got a starting point in that in the European Union taxonomy. So from early next year, there's a whole transition market that opens up as a starter market. No, there's a lot more work in defining details going forward to make it easier for people to participate and to bring in more sectors. But we can start now. And frankly, we have already started. We've seen a number of transition bonds issued already. And there's other forms of transition finance, transition loans, transition equities being talked about. One kind of last ad hoc question for you. You must be getting inquiries and interest about this from all sorts of companies. I imagine you know, you've had your uh, various articles in the FT, which is obviously where I read about it and elsewhere. Just non-scientifically would you say that proportionally is most of the interest coming from the market or is it from uh the industrials at the moment like where are you mostly seeing that sort of push for more information and where's it coming from the interest is coming from investors in other words the buyers they are saying bring it on we want this as is typical 
in the green bond sector, the supply side is behind the curve. We have in the green bond sector a major problem. We can't get enough green bonds. It's lunatic. We cannot satiate the market. We could place 10 trillion tomorrow if we had them, but we can't get them out. So getting the market first to understand and then to package and label is the main part of our job. Now, we are getting inquiries from many businesses. It is happening. But actually, it's the investor side that's that's uh, we're hearing most from. It's interesting because certainly the team at Decarb Connect, what we, as I was saying, I think at the beginning, that one of the things we hear the most is how are we going to do this without, you know, that kind of access to really scalable capital? Um, so clearly there is a need on that side. Um, so we just need to somehow match these groups more more thoroughly together. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. I mean, I'm, I'm actually about to jump off on a call with a high-carbon company that's looking at doing this. So we are getting inquiries. It is coming through. And, of course, one of the things we can do is to have a simple rule set so make it easier for people to engage without having to speak to someone like a, someone like me, which is, of course, a bottleneck. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what the job is in the next six months, to try and make it easy for people to figure out a participant. But but the, the good news for companies that might be musing on this idea is the money's mad keen. The money really wants to do this. So if you are able to do it, go for it. Now, you've already seen this in some sectors in the auto industry where Porsche, VW and Daimler have done green bonds for electric vehicle operations. The demand for those green bonds totally shocked the Treasury departments, totally shocked them. So they're getting preferential cost of capital already when they do a green bond to finance their EV operations or EV, new EV plans going forward. So if you like, there's already inbuilt shift in the financing of those organisations that's been set up. This is an example of what we're going to see around transition finance this year. We've just got to now bring more sectors into it. Well, Sean, thank you so much for giving me some time today. Really a pleasure to have met you. And uh, if I may say, a great use of midlife crisis to like <laughs> this. Um, so, yes, thank you again for joining us today. Thank you, Alex, so much for the time. Bye-bye.